3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. I'm your host, Paddy. I'm not joined at the moment by Alice, Claudia and Ella, but you'll be hearing from them later in the show. And what a show we have for you. My co-hosts have found some really interesting stories and produced them completely remotely. This morning, we're going to hear Alice speak to Liz Jones from the beloved La Mama Theatre about recent funding cuts by the Australia Council. Later, you'll hear Claudia speak to Georgina Lewis, the manager of Tempa Rabada, which is the classical musical venue in Brunswick, as well as Ben Rogers, who was executive officer of the Inner North Community Foundation. Claudia speaks to them about a wonderful initiative led by Tempo Rabado. This is a really positive story that comes out of the upheaval of the coronavirus. Towards the end of the show, you'll also hear the second and final part of my interview with Tikfap High. In the first part of our interview, Tikfap High introduced the topic of meditation and how to include that in our daily lives. This week, we continue that conversation and Tikfap High goes deeper into some of the techniques we can use to meditate and thrive through isolation. After that, we speak to Professor Bill Mitchell, who is director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity at the University of Newcastle, as well as Professor in Global Political Economy at the University of Helsinki. Professor Mitchell puts forward a powerful argument about what we can learn from the economic impact of the coronavirus crisis. In a moment, you're going to hear Alice's interview with Liz Jones, but first, Fulton Street, Problems and Pain.
We hope you're enjoying today's remote broadcast. My name's Alice and I'm going to be speaking to La Mama's CEO, Liz Jones. Following cuts to the Australia Council, some of Australia's most important art organisations have lost their federal funding. On Friday the 3rd of April, Melbourne's beloved La Mama Theatre was one of those small to medium sized theatres that has had their funding rejected. Today I speak with La Mama's CEO and CEO Liz Jones with the plea to help save La Mama. I start by asking Liz, what is the history of La Mama and why has it been so significant in the community? La Mama was formed in 1967. It was formed to give Australian uh, playwrights, performers, artists, um, musicians, uh, poets um, a voice in a, in, a, in, a, in a space where there appeared not to, not to be a, an outlet for voice. Betty Burstall had just come back from America and been so impressed by La Mama New York and other little off-off Broadway theatres, so she really wanted to set up um, yeah, such a space, and she did, um, and it was instantly embraced by the community, um, by poets like Glenn Tomasetti and playwrights like Jack, Jack Hibbard, and it's really been functioning brilliantly since then. Uh, in 1971, um, it, there was an exciting breakthrough in that we got funding from the Australia Council to take it trip of the um, uh, La Mama Company, which became the APG, to Perth. And we've been funded by the Australia Council ever since. And we've grown, of course. We bought our building in 2008. Um, in 1998, we took over the Carlton Courthouse. We've served our community, I think, fairly tirelessly. We serve thousands of artists every year. We involve thousands of artists every year. And it's a space where people can come without any backup. You know, the people who people can come who, who living in their vans. People can come mm. because we fund. We've we've always funded the work we've done. People have never had to scrabble around to fund the work they've done. And the box office has always gone uh, as much as possible in full. Um, certainly, at least eighty percent to the the performers. Um, and creatives. Um, yes, yeah, so um, we, we, as I say, we bought La Mama in 2008, which was wonderful. But in 2018, 10 years later, very sadly, La Mama burnt, was gutted by mm. fire. And in 2019, we raised over $3.5 million to rebuild it from the philanthropic sector and the community sector and from government too, not the federal government, but certainly the state government. The federal government didn't help at all, I don't think. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then suddenly in 2020 we are defunded by the Australia Council who, who the, um, are 50% of our daily running funding, uh, of our management, mm. yeah, and, mm. and, and of what we fund in the arts sector. Mm. And did this this happened last Friday on the third of April, I believe, or was yeah, it? Yes, that's right. Yes, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And was it a surprise? Oh, it was it was a shock. Mm. Um, my my poor um, co CEO and company manager Caitlin, when she rang me, she was actually in shock. She was in deep shock. Um, she was 
because it was so unexpected. We were told that we'd done a very good submission. We put in our expression of interest. We were told we'd done a very good submission, that it was in the top third percentile. And that, um, and, and so I guess we had, we had actually hadn't ever thought we wouldn't be funded. Um, you know, and um, and for Caitlin, it was a terrible shock. And I, and of course, in this COVID environment, in, in environment, it's so difficult because you know she was there in Trentham. I'm in Newport. She's very pregnant. I couldn't comfort her or hold her or tell her what a wonderful job she'd done. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it it was honestly devastating. Wow. I, I can only I can only imagine and and was is this funding because of the current pandemic is that is that no, where these no. cuts are coming from No no it's got nothing to do with the pandemic at all no it's got to do with the appalling lack of funding for the Australia Council mm. And um, this has been happening for a while Oh yes we we've been, the Australia Council's been in a state of funding attrition um for a very long while particularly under the present government. Um, Brandis, as you know, Brandis um, took away a whole lot of funding from the Australia Council, which resulted in many, many companies being defunded, um, and we never got that back, and we never have got it. The Australia Council never has it back. So, you know, when the, you, you, you imagine this is the, the, the decision that the Australia Council has to make. They look at and they see, um, you know, there's three, four, five, six wonderful theatre companies in Victoria, um, Ilbidgery, Back to Back, Polyglot, La Mama, and they suddenly realise they've only got enough money to fund two of them. So all all but Ilbidgery and Back to Back were dropped. All of us were dropped on our heads. Oh, wow. I mean, it was terrible. You know, and and one does look and see that there were that other committees in the Australia Council were obviously better funded than the arts than the than theatre. You know, the multi arts managed to hang on to arts house and substation and and as they should have been and 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 um, uh, you know Footscray, but they weren't given such a hideous choice as the poor theatre peer group who literally had to choose between those that I just and St Martin's all those that I just told you all that deserved funding all that expected funding and all that are deeply shocked not to get funding and I'm sure those the, the two back to back and Ilbidgery really feel for the rest of us because you I mean you couldn't you couldn't defund our wonderful indigenous Ilbidgery or our wonderful disabled you know, people for, with, with, with the challenges of back-to-back. And so the rest of us, we got nothing, nothing at all. Wow. And is that is that for until the, until the next funding round where you can apply again or does it mean you're picking up the pieces and you're trying to figure out on a day-to-day basis how, how you're going to survive this? Yeah, we're picking it up. We have got, we have got some funding to help us get through 2021. Um, I mean, we'll all we'll all, we'll be building in 2020 in this year, mm. and into 2021 we will be in fairly straightened circumstances. Anyway, we have got um, some funding because uh, they've, they've given us um, the Australia Council have given us some money to tide us over. Um, but then we just face I don't know what we face. We face I guess a wait of at least three or four years before we can possibly think of being refunded, unless the 
liberal federal party in its infinite wisdom decides to give some money to the Australia Council so they can fund us. Mm. They can do that easily, you know. They've already come they've already come to the party and given money to the visual arts and music. It just thing it just seems at the moment to me like theatre's the poor the poor second cousin that's been forgotten. Mm. And La Mama's been such a huge part in a huge part of Melbourne in its cultural scene. Um, and what happens to culture in Australia if these small to medium theatres and festivals and companies and clubs are completely decimated? Well, you see, it, it, in theatre, it just leaves the, the, the enormous flagship companies, the MTC mm. and the Malthouse and, and, you know, Sydney Theatre Company, Bill. But we love them. We love them. But that's not where your grassroots roots creator starts, you know. I mean, David Williamson started at La Mama. He didn't start at the MTC. Um, in fact, most most of the, many, you know, Kate Blanchett started at La Mama, Davey, Damien Walsh Howling. You just, it just, um, Julia Zamiro, Judith Lucy, it goes on forever. People don't actually start at the top. I wonder if those pollies, the liberal pollies, realise that people actually, you know, they don't all leap from Melbourne grammar to stardom. Oh, my God, you can tell I'm angry. Yeah, and every right to be so as well. <laughs> Right. Oh, dear. And um, and what can we do? Well, you can put pressure on the Liberal Party, the Liberal government, on your on the federal, particularly federal. You see, the the, the state government have been brilliant. They have they've supported us all the way, and we're getting very supportive messages from them now. You need to put pressure on the Liberal the Liberal uh, government um, and the federal government, and let them know that they it's not just you know. The, this is unfortunately this is not part of co of the COVID nineteen package. I guess uh, it sort of <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with it. They've chronically underfunded the Australia Council as long as they possibly could. Um, they've done everything when they get into power to dismantle it. Um, going right back, I mean, I've been involved with the Australia Council for a very long time and I have just watched it, watched it be bashed by the Liberal Party continually. I have no idea why because it seems to me it's, a, mm. it's, a, it's an, all, an immense organisation of integrity. It does its job extremely well. But um, So, look, yes, that's what, that's what we need to do. It's not huge funding, you know. It's nothing like these big packages um, we're, we're, we're the small to medium sector. We, we, we exist on a shoestring. Yeah. Um, but we do need a shoestring. Without the shoestring, we're done. Yeah, yeah. So so do we need to get, everyone needs to get onto their MPs, yep. find your local yep. Liberal MPs mm. and just shout as loudly as we can please, to, please, please. to government. That's what, I, that's what we'd love. That's what we're asking everyone to do. Um, and um, it, it's just, also if you get onto our, um, our website, you'll see that there's also a survey that you can do, um, which, will, which will result in a petition. Yeah, so just, if, yeah, but particularly write to your federal MP and let them know that this is happening. Because but in the, well, because in this these straightened times, they possibly are unaware of it. It is a small issue, um, but but when this is all over, and people can go back to being creative and vibrant and really want an outlet for their poetry, their music, their their plays, their performances, their little companies, that's when they'll really notice that. 
that the grassroots is gone. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on the dial. I'm Alice and I've just been speaking with La Mama's CEO, Liz Jones. La Mama was one of the innovative and legendary arts organisations that on the 3rd of April had its funding rejected. Please raise your voice and shout as loudly as possible to your local Liberal MPs. 3CR listeners have loud voices and we've used them very well over the years. So in dedication to La Mama and our activists at home yearning to shout as loudly as possible, here's a piece of music by Fiona Carbo called Voice. Thank you. 
sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Now we're going to hear the second part of our interview with Tick Fapai. Brother Fapai is a senior monastic student of Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. He was ordained in 1997 and formally authorised to teach by Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh in January 2003. In this interview, Tik Fapai goes into further detail about some of the different meditation techniques you can do in your daily life, wherever you are, to find peace in the present moment. He starts off by telling me about the mindset we should bring to meditation. I, I just wanted to circle back to something you said earlier. You talked about um, the mindset that many of us are in, you know, that when this is over, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. In the Zen tradition, we, we remind ourselves always that this is it. This is our life right here and now. And right at the moment, um, that's also the attitude we bring to our meditation. So there are a lot of tools that we have. Um, that we can use around the home. For example, um, there's a, a practice that we use in our monasteries. Every single time you hear a sound of the bell, which is at least every 15 minutes, um, we practice to physically stop, stop all of our movement, close our eyes, and to just breathe in and out and experience a moment of, ah, put down all of our worries, all the stories, all of the different things we need to do and to come back home. So that's the first thing. I, I'd suggest, like, Considering something in your home, it might be the notification bell on your phone. It could be um, any other any other sound that is like a bell of mindfulness for you. And rather than being something that just pulls you out of yourself, it could be a reminder to come back home. The other thing that I find really helpful is walking meditation. Um, whenever we walk, uh, we we don't walk like we normally walk in, in daily life. And that's just to get somewhere else. And we arrive only when we're over there. But each step we take, um, we take as if it's a, a very deep step. Breathing in, we can take three or four steps, just experiencing again that sense of, ah, maybe we're walking from our lounge room to the kitchen. So we walk in such a way that, um, that it's peaceful, that it's lovely, that it's deep. In fact, our teacher teaches children um, to, as they breathe in and they're taking a step and really feeling the miracle of walking, this whole body process that we're not normally aware of and feeling the sensation of their foot on the ground invites them just to say to themselves, yes, what am I saying yes to? I'm saying yes to things as they are in this moment. And as we breathe out, just silently saying to ourselves, thank you. You know, we have a body, we're alive. We have all of these conditions right now. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but right now we have uh, wonderful conditions. Um, another thing I would suggest is, 
just two other, actually two other quick things. One is um, I suggest in the morning when you wake up, um, before you just jump into the day, um, maybe you make yourself a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and just take even five minutes. Everybody has at least five minutes right now. A lot of people have more time than they know what to do with at the moment. Take five minutes just to sit and drink your tea. Um, we do sitting meditation um, uh, every morning, but that might not be feasible for you. Sit and drink your tea. Look deeply into the tea. Feel the tea nourish you. Um, just take a few moments for yourself. Um, take a few moments to really arrive into the day. And then finally, I would suggest um, having an hour a day where you turn off your phone, you have a news fast, a technological sabbatical, just take time to walk outside, um, to be outside and do a little bit of what we call forest bathing. Even if um, you're in the city, there's still some trees and greenery around. Let the green um, enter your eyes, let the smell of the, the grass, let all of these um, beautiful um, wonders of life enter your senses and allow yourself to come to life, especially in this moment when we're thinking a lot about death, we're thinking a lot about pain, we're thinking a lot about suffering, we also need to nurture our hearts. So there are wonders of life around. Why not take these simple moments of our life as moments to be alive? There are, those are things that I think are possible um, for, for us and quite easy to accomplish. A little bit of stopping every day with, with our, our phones, perhaps a, a few steps in mindfulness, having a nice cup of tea in mindfulness, and then um, going outside, um, enjoying the sunshine and opening our senses. Have you found anything helpful yourself? I, I like to I like to try and do the the sitting meditation and as well uh, when I'm doing little tasks around the house that you sort of yeah you do unconsciously so, sort of like the dishes or something like that I like to uh, really try and focus on oh I'm going to wash each spoon wash each cup and uh, be aware of what I'm doing and sort of enjoy that feeling of having your hands in hot water and and rather than seen as a chore that you need to get rid of while you think about something else. Yeah. Uh, that's that's powerful yeah and i i've noticed as well like when i do that um when i'm aware of things uh, not as a chore but as an opportunity to, to go a little bit more deeply and to just enjoy them i notice um i get more in contact with my body and i notice all the layers of tension if i think that something's a chore that i have to get through in order to get somewhere else you know to get uh, to get happiness or whatever then i notice there's a kind of a tension in my body so i've been practicing a lot with just relaxing um, throughout the day. I think uh, when, I, when I've when i talked with people, I've seen how exhausted and how afraid and, and um, just how frazzled everybody is and just those moments of opening up and relaxing and just enjoying the simple uh, things like you mentioned, hot water on our skin, a breeze, you know, the, the smell of flowers or grass or something like that. Those are, those are really powerful right now. Definitely. I think one of the things that deters people from meditation sometimes is they think, oh, I need, to, I need to be able to sit down for an hour and close my eyes and breathe. But you can find these moments of meditation uh, throughout your day. Meditation is life. Uh, meditation is life. We always say like sitting on the cushion is only preparation for life. Uh, so where can people find instruction on meditation? Well, I'd like to, there are so many resources out there um, and so many of them are amazing. I think at the moment, while we're all at home, one um, great resource is the Plum Village app. You can find it in the Apple Store or in the Play Store on Google Play. Um, so the Plum Village app. Um, or also there are a number of meditation teachers, including myself, who are offering Zoom sessions in the, um, in the evenings or during the day. 
Um, Plum Village um, itself has uh, a resource. If you go to plumvillage.org forward slash live, then they have a a listing of all the different live sessions. They're live streaming their meditations, they're live streaming their walking meditations and things so that people who are interested can join them from home. Um, I'm also, while I'm here in Australia, every evening I'm doing um, Zoom meditation sessions, kind of a check-in for everybody, a discussion, different themed meditation every evening. It goes for about an hour. Um, so, and then I'll, I'll offer the, the Zoom meeting room if anybody wants to tune in, they're welcome. Oh, that's, that's, that's excellent. And could I ask, uh, do you think there are any other uh, Buddhist teachings that uh, can help people in these trying times, or like any of the... Uh, the precepts or the the noble truths or you know uh, uh, is that something that people can take to heart uh, especially when it's when we're in these difficult times I think yes um, definitely and at the same time I I really I feel like this is the time where the rubber meets the road you know what I mean and for a lot of people these teachings on um, the the four noble truths and things can be kind of theoretical the Four Noble Truths are really the essence of the Buddha's insight on the, like the nature of human existence. But when we talk about suffering, you know, it's important for us to understand what's my suffering? What are my difficulties? You know, otherwise, it's, it's just something kind of generic. So there's a couple of things that come to my mind, uh, like in terms of, um, of teachings that could be helpful. In the life of the Buddha, we, we see like the story of the Buddha is the story of a prince who lived in a palace and was sheltered from all the difficulties of life. And then he burst out of the, the palace gates a few times and he came into contact with a sick person. And it shocked him. It absolutely shocked him to his core. And then he came into contact with an old person. And again, the same thing happened. It just made him question everything. And then a dead person he, he came into contact with. And... When I think about the the life story of the Buddha, I think about our situation. Um, For many of us, whether it's this situation of the the coronavirus or just in general, like life touches us. These kind of things like come in and they're either, either in those situations when we're touched by death or we're touched by sickness or we're touched by um, all of these other really visceral, scary moments. We either implode in on ourselves or it calls us forth into a, a journey of discovery, into a journey of opening our heart. So I would, my first invitation for um, the listeners would be, um, if you're noticing that you're feeling really scared and afraid, is there a way that um, this moment could be an invitation for you to, um, to move forth, to go forward from those walls and to really embark on your own journey of discovery? Um, So what calls you forth? What's calling you forth in this moment? To kind of consider that, at least with our Buddhist insight, there's actually nothing wrong with suffering. We think that we have to get rid of suffering in order to get happiness. Um, But we don't really ask ourselves, what do we mean by happiness? What's my experience of happiness? We just kind of think we want happiness, but we don't really ask ourselves what it is. So there's nothing wrong with suffering. It's part of the way things are. So how can we embrace both of those things and to see like this situation and all the other difficult situations as part of life? Um, the, the last, like we have what we call um, the remembrances, which um, I think are really important. And I, I reflect on them every day. And it's uh, basically, as I shared earlier, it's the messengers. It's really to sit down and to reflect, um, you know, I will get old. 
I am getting old for sure. Um, and then um, I will, I'm of the nature to become sick. That's my, uh, my nature. And then I will die. Um, now this sounds really heavy, but this is also the reality of life. This is something that we tend not to look at, something that really scares us. And in Buddhism, we say that a teacher, a good teacher has to have two faces. One is this face that we normally think of compassion, which is this motherly, gentle, Kuan Yin kind of compassion. And another side of compassion is really fierce. Another side of a teacher is fierce. It can almost look demonic. And so I see the current situation as a really wrathful, a really fierce teacher that cuts, like, gets us down to the really visceral things, our deepest fears um, of being socially isolated, of dying, of, um, of becoming sick. You know what I mean? And all of those false um, safeties that we thought we have are being cut away. So these remembrances help remind me of, of these aspects of existence that are really difficult to look at. And then the final thing that um, one of my students said to me um, about a year ago, which I found personally helpful, I was going through a, a, a difficult physical moment. I um, have a chronic illness and my, my student, sometimes the students are, are the best teachers. The student said to me, you know what, uh, Tevam Hai, you have up until this moment, a 100% success rate of overcoming difficulties. Every single difficulty in your life up until this moment, you've overcome. So there's no reason to think that this moment is going to be any different. And I thought, how powerful is that? So I wrote that on the fridge, 100% success rate. And it's true. We've done it and that we will do it. That was Tik Fapai telling us about meditation. And I hope you found some of that useful in building a practice of mindfulness during this lockdown. Uh, one thing I found useful is paying attention to the sensations of washing my hands and enjoying that moment of mindfulness in my day. And speaking of enjoying, here is a song I found that I really like. It's called Twice a Fool by Number One Dads.
Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. Call 9231 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter. Pianist Georgina Lewis, manager of Tempo Rubato, a classical music venue in Brunswick, and Ben Rogers, executive officer of the Inner North Foundation, an independent charity supporting communities in Melbourne's Inner North suburbs, are here to talk with us today. Well, they say music is the food of love, and that might well be the inspiration for a wonderful initiative set up by a small classical music venue in Brunswick. Tempo Rubato normally operates as a Friday night live music venue. 
But in the shutdown caused by the coronavirus, it has decided to spread the love in a different way. Here to explain exactly what they are doing is Tempo Rabato manager, Georgina Lewis. Welcome, Georgina. Thanks, Claudia. Thanks for having me. Obviously, we've been really devastated to see how this um, shutdown has affected many of our artists. Um, we've tried to find ways to support them online by promoting what they're doing. But um, we knew too that there are very immediate needs of people, which include um, shelter, healthcare, communication, and of course, food as well. So we decided to turn our attention to food. Temporary Bado is owned by uh, Georgie Imberger, who's actually a doctor in her full, uh, her other life. <laughs> um, and she and her team at the, her hospital have obviously been preparing for this pandemic for a lot of weeks and trying to um, do what they can um, after hearing all of the awful stories from Italy um, and Spain. Um, uh, so she's been really very, a, a real advocate in everyone following social distancing um, advice and uh, at the same time seeing that in the, the at the same time that her job is becoming more stressful and she's looking at working really long hours there are lots of people who as a result will be losing their jobs um, and so uh, she's been amazing she's kept me on um, on my pay and also the other staff who work there but um, since we've we're not able to have our concerts anymore I've turned my attention to um, yeah trying to manage this food drive that we've begun so encouraging people who are still on an income during this time to donate money that will go to food vouchers uh, for people who are in desperate need um, and while the government uh, subsidies are going to be really amazing for a lot of people. We know that that will take some time to come into effect. So we wanted to just get onto it immediately because um, even before this thing started, I know there were there are a lot of people who were struggling to feed themselves and this has just sort of amplified that. So um, yeah, luckily I managed to find the Inner North Community Foundation and uh, Ben Rogers and I, I think he can explain more about um, what they'll be doing, but we'll be donating our money to them to go to food vouchers and um, people in our community. Well, we'll welcome Ben now. Ben is the Executive Officer at the Inner North Foundation. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Claudia. Thank you so much for having us today. It's great to be with you. How did you first hear about the Tempo Rubato Food Relief Project? Uh, like lots of good things, uh, we first uh, heard of Tempo Roboto's food drive through email and um, Tempo reached out to have a conversation about partnerships and collaboration, which is um, one of the strengths of um, community life uh, in the North and in lots of other places is um, how different organisations and how different people bring all community capital to bear on, on critical community issues. Have you had many people come to you from the music industry doing something in food relief? Uh, we haven't, but I, I mean, I think, so the, the Inner North Community Foundation is a, uh, a funding body for Melbourne's Inner North. So we're interested in um, how to support strong civil society in Darabin, Moreland and Yarra. Um, we make grants to local community groups. Um, we talk to local people about generosity and giving and we and we think about how to steward and 
um, sustain community leadership and community voice. We're in touch with lots of different charities and community groups across the north that are doing amazing things um, in the COVID response, but also uh, in their day-to-day missions about giving people dignity and giving people choice and giving people uh, opportunities. Can you take us through the chain of steps? So how will the money that Tempo raise actually end up in a food box delivered to someone in need? Um, so with, our, with the Inner North Community Foundation COVID Fund, we're funding emergency relief vouchers for local families uh, through local traders. So we're working with existing charities that provide food and other support for families in crisis uh, to give them more resources. Uh, we know that in times of need, um, more people approach and, and need help. Uh, and often the, the fundraising, and the, the, the kind of day-to-day fundraising, the day-to-day resources of community groups are, are, are stretched and depleted. There's more need and less capacity to respond. Um, so we're working with organisations like um, Community Information Support Victoria at their Coburg branch to provide vouchers for Lamana Fresh in Sydney Road. So people um, will um, go to uh, Sisvik in the, on the corner of Bell and Sydney Road um, and their trained staff will do an assessment um, and talk to people about what's useful and for some of those people, what's useful will be a food box from Lamana. Um, the staff at CISVIC will go online and, and use a, a particular code and, and order a food box through their online system and we'll deliver that to them. It sounds excellent. It sounds like um, you've got all the uh, logistics and the, the process uh, underway, which is, is... It's certainly underway. It's certainly yeah. like many people, Claudia, it's, you know, the world has been tipped on its head. And um, we're figuring out how to, how to fly an aeroplane while we're, how to build an aeroplane while we're flying it. But what I, I would say is that there's lots of different um, community groups um, that are, are standing up and doing meaningful work for their communities. There are lots of individuals that are thinking about how to be generous and how to share in times of need. And that plays out in lots of different ways. Um, uh, so it's, it's great to be in touch with lots of different um, ways that people need support because there's not one single door to walk through. There's going to be lots of different ways that uh, vulnerable families and vulnerable people need basic necessities. Um, and so it's great to see the different ways that people can, can access that. Has there been any specific um, incidents or observations that you've had lately that have been particularly inspiring? Uh, so I think, I mean, I think the speed at which the charity sector can respond uh, to this crisis has been really inspiring. So I think about an organisation like um, Social Studio in, in um, Collingwood that have for many years given refugee young people um, skills in the fashion industry. So they're a, they're a designer. And over the last fortnight, they've pivoted away from high-end fashion to making medical scrubs for nurses. I think about the neighbourhood house sector that's closed their doors and um, can't see people face to face, but are being creative about how they connect people to each other. So we're um, talking with Belgium neighbourhood house down in Richmond about having a uh, a film film competition for people in the high rise estate, so that, that people um, when they're in lockdown can 
make some videos and then go into a competition and share their experience in a, in a lighthearted way to try and bring some relief. And I think about the, the, the youth workers up in Glenroy that are making sure that young people have um, the information that they need, that they have the support that they need, because we know that when there are less structures in the lives of um, at-risk young people, then it's going to make it harder to engage and to connect. And so those workers um, are being extremely creative and dedicated to making sure that everyone gets the support they need. I think um, creativity is definitely being showcased in the response to this crisis. The, the buzzword that seems to be going around, though, is um, pivoting. And I'm curious, Georgina, you're a pianist by background and you're working in a music venue. How's the pivoting experience been for you moving into setting up this platform and shifting into community food relief? Tempo from the start when we set it up, always we always wanted it to be um, a place where everyone felt welcome. Um, and so I, I think doing this thing to extend that to helping people from all different walks of life who are struggling right now and um, has been really exciting for me. I've always uh, been interested in um, communities and um, what we can do to help people who may be falling through the cracks. Um, it was a big part of my upbringing. So um, for me, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I think it's been eye-opening and it's also been really encouraging to see what amazing work is going on. And in fact, um, Tempo was primarily set up as a, as a means to, to assist migrant communities in the teaching of music. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I actually started out as one of the teachers with the piano project um, and then moved into this role. We only opened last year in June. So, um, yeah, so in a way the, what this is, is a continuation of the, I guess, the vision that um, the owner Georgie had from the start, which is, yeah, trying to make Australia a bit of a more gentle and welcoming place for people who've you know moved here recently or now people who are suffering from this new the new Australia that the COVID pandemic has um, tipped us all into um, so yeah I've I think it's it's very much at the heart of what our venue is about and for me it's uh, yeah I'm feeling really encouraged by particularly by the generosity of people since um, we put the drive online and especially by people who I, I we've encouraged people to donate anonymously but um, I've seen that some people who I know have themselves suffered a bit of a hit to their income have still donated um, which has to me really been uh, beautiful to see that people are still thinking of others in this time. <laughs> Can you share with listeners the website address and how they can donate if they're able to at this at this time? Yeah, uh, so um, there's a link on our home page on our website, um, which is www.temporubato.com.au um, and you can follow the link and make a donation there. Otherwise, we're on all the social media channels as well, if that's more your thing. <laughs> And Ben, um, if you're on the other end um, and seeking relief, what's the best way for people to access some of these uh, offerings? So there's, there's lots of different organisations um, that provide emergency relief across the state. 
so there's some information on the Community Information Support Victoria website for statewide information. For the Inner North specifically, www.innernorthfoundation.org.au slash COVID has some information both around um, the current funding available for charities and emergency relief providers in the North, um, but there's also some information there about how individuals and families that are in crisis that need support um, can access necessities. Uh, and I would say that there's lots of um, great, generous people doing lots of amazing things um, across different communities. Uh, and that the sense of being better together is, is, is really strong in lots of parts of, of the community. So if you are in strife, reach out, um, talk to others, um, uh, there are people there that, that are there to support you. So, Well, thank you both. Um, it's been uh, incredibly inspiring hearing both your stories and the way you're collaborating to assist people in your community. And I'll uh, repeat those numbers, those website addresses. So to reach out and donate uh, to this food voucher uh, relief fundraiser, it's www.temporubato. So T-E-M-P-O-R-U-B-A-T-O dot com dot A-U. And if you'd like to find out more about the services uh, and support that you can access through the Inner North Foundation, that's www.innernorthfoundation.org.au forward slash COVID, C-O-V-I-D. Strong, healthy relationships are a major contributor to a content and fulfilling life. Being supported by friends, family and colleagues can make a world of difference during tough times. We caught up with Anastasia Simons from Are You OK? to find out more. Strong interpersonal relationships, so having people that you can rely on, people in your life that you can know you can turn to when times are tough, is a really important protective factor through all of life's challenges. Through those moments where we might feel a little bit overwhelmed, we might feel anxious, or we might indeed be, be facing something that we do need some extra support for. So being able to have people that you can turn to, people that you've invested time, energy, and of course created those strong connections with is really important. And what research has shown us is that that sense of connection, that sense of belonging, which is so often driven by those interpersonal relationships, can be a protective factor against suicide. So Are You OK? focuses on ensuring that people do feel connected, that there are people in their life that they can turn to, and there are people that they can rely on through all of life's ups and downs. To get some practical advice on how to build stronger relationships and to access a range of information on how to support yourself and those around you through difficult times, why not head to areyouok.org.au. The Community Radio Suicide Prevention Project is produced with the support of the Australian Government Department of Health. And now we're going to hear Josh Hook playing part of Claude Debussy's La Cathedrale en Glouti. This performance was recorded at Tempo Rubato by Ed Myler.
Our last interview today is with Professor William Mitchell, who is the director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity at the University of Newcastle. He is also Professor in Global Political Economy at the University of Helsinki. He has published widely in academic journals and books, and is regularly invited to give keynote presentations in Australia and abroad. He is one of the founders of Modern Monetary Theory, and his research focuses on modern monetary theory, labour market dynamics, framing and language, European integration, and development economics. So with all that, with all those credentials, I asked Professor Mitchell to explain for us what's going on in macroeconomic terms as a result of the coronavirus crisis. Well, I mean, what's happened is that uh, there's, there's two, two main effects. The first effect is what we call a supply side effect. And that's the impact of factory closures and the disruption to what we call a, the supply chain. That's because we're all the economies in the world are now linked. Uh, we get, you know, there's these just-in-time systems where factories in, say, Korea uh, don't keep very much inventory at all for, you know, the assembly lines. And they, you know, I was in Korea and uh, uh, not long ago and I saw the big ships coming in and from China just full of components. So that's been disrupted initially. And uh, then you've got the lo- then then locally all all the uh, users of those components are then disrupted, so they have to stop, and and so that's multiplying through the economy on the supply side. That's the first effect, and it's hard to assess that effect, but it's definitely a negative effect. And the other effect is what we call a demand side effect, a spending type of effect, and of course as uh, and this has two impacts. One is the, the, the supply chain, uh, chain interruption. Uh, firms who can't get access to components then lay off their work or sort of stand them down until it's sorted out. But there's also the uh, government policy effect because what the government has done in this very particular episode is told hospitality sector, entertainment sector, uh, restaurants and cafes, sporting uh, venues, uh, and all of the things that we now have closed, and a lot of shops. Uh, now that's uh, they're laying off workers, and those, and so they're not selling. And our measure of economic activity is sales, and so uh, there's been a dramatic shortfall in sales. And then those particular ventures then lay off their workers and they don't spend uh, as much as they would have in places uh, that are still open. Uh, And and so you get those contractions happening there. So at the macro level, the way we would summarise that would be that uh, um, what we call gross domestic product, so that's a... A, a measure of how much is being produced and sold each period, like a quarter or a year or whatever you want. Uh, that's definitely going to be smaller by how much we're not sure. If the government hadn't have intervened and uh, 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 protected at least to some extent the incomes of workers, 
uh, and and handed out other forms of bailout, then the GDP loss would have been huge, but it's still going to be very substantial. So we've got less income, less employment, uh, and that's a combination that's not very desirable. Yeah, not not at all. I've seen the words recession and depression coming up using in the media as possible consequences of uh, of those issues you were just talking about um, on the global economy. Could you explain the difference between those two terms? And do, do you have any predictions whether they're avoidable, whether they're going to happen, what uh, what we're going to see in the world in the next? Well, well, well. The, cons- the the term recession has a very specific technical meaning, and what it means is that gross domestic product, so that's the total market value of goods and services produced in a period, that has to be the growth in GDP has to be negative for two consecutive quarters for there to be officially a recession. If the economy just contracts for one quarter, so that's a 12 or 13 week period, then that's not considered a recession. It's just considered a sort of temporary downturn in activity. But if that downturn then uh, moves into the second quarter and for the second period, there's negative growth, that's called a recession. And now that can be very deep where the contractions are very severe it can be very mild where the contractions are still negative, but are still there, negative GDP growth, but not as severe. Now, when it comes to a depression, there's no real technical definition for a depression. A depression is uh, typically recessions are, very, are relatively short-lived. Uh, they, they might be two or three quarters at a maximum. And the economy, they can be very severe, but they, they, the economy takes a dive and then it, usually the government enters the picture, provides some support for the economy, which, which we call a fiscal stimulus, uh, some spending support or cutting taxes or whatever, and the economy starts to recover again relatively quickly. It doesn't mean it's not a severe event, but it's a relatively short-lived event historically. Now, depression is is qualitatively more severe than that. We don't have the two negative quarters definition. A a depression is where the contraction in GDP is very severe and it's it's long-lasting. So in in our recent history, uh, Greece, for example, during the global financial crisis and afterwards entered a depression, because its economy shrunk by around 25% and it's still about 25% smaller after 10 10 years. So so that's that's a very severe event, a very big damage to uh, incomes lost and sustained losses. Whereas, for example, the US and, and the UK during the global financial crisis had deep recessions but they didn't last for 10 years. They lasted for a year, maybe. Both are very undesirable. Now, in terms of what's going to happen this time, uh, it's probable we'll have a recession, but it's not, it's not unavoidable. And this is where the role of, uh, of government comes into play. And what is because that role? 
Well, effectively, the government is the currency issuer. So, so the currency that we use as households and business firms use, uh, the, that's issued by the government and it's the only body that issues that currency. And so it, it has unlimited spending power. And what it's constrained by are the real resources that are available for, to be bought by the government, that's productive resources, labour and, and what have you. And uh, uh, if, if it tries to spend too much and therefore drive excessive demand for real resources, too much spending chasing the resources, then there'd be inflation. But if there's a lot of I likelihood of a lot of idle resources, like unemployed workers, then the government can buy all of them, their use, uh, temporarily or longer term, depending what's the situation, and not create in, it has no constraint in doing that. And so the role of government, in my view, is always to avoid recessions by stepping into the, the gap, the spending gap, because resources are used productively if there's demand for them. And firms demand labour, for example, because they can put the labour to work and produce things which they can sell. sell. Now, if sales, sales start dropping, then firms lay off workers. And so what the government has the capacity to do is to fill that spending gap and make sure that those workers remain with incomes and employed. And if it does that properly, it can minimise the downturn. Okay. And so in my mind, that would be one of the more, the shorter term uh, solutions, I suppose. And then what, what kind of the, what are the longer term reforms that we need to see in Australia uh, to, to combat the, the, you know, the problems in the, um, uh, how we, how we, uh, uh, how our economy works in response to these crises in the future. Well, how long have we got? I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the thing I, I've been saying, and I've been saying it for quite a while, of course, but is that, um, this crisis is a very bad health crisis for our society and the, and the world. It's, it's, the word that's being bandied around by everybody is unprecedented. Well, it's not really. I mean, <laughs> uh, we've had Spanish flu a hundred years ago. You know, we had the plague in the in the medieval period. So we we have these issues, and uh, typically we've been able to control them through better hygiene and better healthcare and more understanding of those issues. But there's all these viruses out there. And uh, this one's just uh, popped up and creating havoc. So, but before that came along, the, the Australian economy was not in good shape at all. And uh, if you think about it, we've currently got 13.7% of our willing labour resources, either unemployed, that's not working at all, or underemployed, working part-time but wanting more hours and not being able to find enough work. And the, the national income losses of that and, the, and therefore the income losses to families of 13.7% of your available labour not working sufficiently is, is hu uh, huge. And we had um, 
worsening inequality, income and wealth inequality, as characteristic of this neoliberal era. We've had a degradation of our public service delivery. Uh, our public infrastructure has been run down. Our education systems, our health systems, our transport systems are not functioning very well. The privatisations of the 90s and afterwards of our, say, our transport and energy sectors have created unreliable electricity generation and, um, and very expensive energy. Uh, our telecommunication system, the NBN, was meant to take us into the next century almost, and it's, a, and it's proven to be a disaster because of penny-pinching on behalf of the government. And on top of all of that, that's all of those. And we've got the gig economy mm. where young, young people are now scootering around everywhere delivering food for, for peanuts, basically, uh, with no security, no job security, no uh, um, entitlements like leave pay, sick pay. They've got to provide their own scooters and equipment and they've got no superannuation being paid in for them and so and no career prospects mm. and a lot, and more and more young people are relying on that sort of work not realizing that that's a that it, that's a short term fix for them maybe because there's a lack of decent work but it's a long term disaster for them because they're going to get old and uh and not have the sort of uh stored up entitlements that that their parents mostly were able to achieve for a superannuation and so we've got you know we've got precarious work we've got 25 percent of our workforce who are employed without into those entitlements uh increased casualization so you know put the, that's a social disaster all of that and then on top of that we've got an ecological disaster face in front of us and while we're worried at the moment about the health medical problem really we 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 went into this with an environmental crisis which needs a massive transformation in production and consumption patterns uh, which needs a massive uh, uh, change in the role of the state relative to the non-government sector uh, the state is going to have to become much more important in our lives in driving the transition away from carbon and in and, and and when we and so we've got all these challenges so we've got to move from carbon to non-carbon and we've got to improve the quality and quantity of work we've got to restore the scope and quality of our public services and infrastructure and they're the sort of long-term challenges once we get over this health crisis the, all of those things are still staring us in the face and undermining our society and, you know, you might, people are, are, are reflecting on all oh, our health systems under a lot of strain and health systems around the world are under a lot of stress now. Well, one of the reasons for that is in this neoliberal period, the obsession with running fiscal surpluses by our governments has underspent on essential and crucial infrastructure, uh, a very myopic strategy, uh, uh, thinking that nothing bad's going to happen tomorrow. And then when there's a, a crisis arises like we have on our hands now, we don't have the, the, the quality of our and quantity of health services 
uh, available and that worsens the problem. And this is happening all around the world, not only in health, but, uh, you know, there's been major uh, flood damage in Britain in the last few years because the British government was running, trying to run surpluses and didn't spend enough on flood mitigation works and improving their, their, their flood uh, emergency systems. And you, you can go on and on with the, the collapse of our public transports around the world, you know, and uh, uh, all of these things are, are, are expressions or manifestations of the same problem, the, the, the stupidity of trying to run fiscal surpluses. And, and yeah, I, I like how you said that they're the, phys- the manifestations in uh, uh, lo- localised, but it's this uh, global pro- problem. We need to see the global community pull together to deal with uh, uh, climate change, with uh, these, these kind of uh, global issues. What can world leaders learn from uh, this coronavirus crisis and the economic effects of it to apply to climate, the climate crisis? Because uh, I've seen sort of the even the Australian government sort of less partisan and uh, sort of more interaction between uh, global actors. Well, if the, the first first answer is what can we learn from it? Okay. As citizens, because we elect our leaders, <laughs> and what what we can learn from it is that we've been duped for years by economists my profession, they've lied to people, they've created a fictional world that's told us that governments should run surpluses, that they should rely on the market to deliver essential services, that if you privatise essential services like energy, you'll get better outcomes like public transport, you privatise that, you'll get better outcomes, uh, that, it, that you, uh, uh, if you starve telecommunication telecommunication sector you'll get better outcomes and uh, you know the NBN's a classic case in our recent history where the government started to penny pinch it's ended up costing it's ending up uh, they've got to invest more than they they would have if they had just stuck to the fibre to the home they've got a system that's uh, patched together that's not going to work it doesn't work under stress they've forced the NBN company to uh, chase commercial returns when the, the public infrastructure should be delivering social services, not not profits. Uh, and and so we've been brought into this uh, to believe in this uh, mythical world that if the government runs surpluses, that's desirable, and if it runs deficits, it's undesirable. And that's been that's been the message of neoliberalism that uh, 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 co-opt the government. Um, to do the work for the for capital and the elites, and uh, to uh, run down social social welfare systems, to uh, not intervene in labour markets to protect workers' conditions, cut penalty rates on the most disadvantaged workers. We've got the casual workers. You know who are the most important workers right now? Well, it's very low low paid cleaners and nurses. Mm. They're, they're our most important workers. It's not the bankers and the lawyers and the stockbrokers that are very important right now. And we've been led to, we've, we've, got a, we've been induced by narratives and uh, think tanks and uh, a biased media to have this skewed version of the world. So what we can learn from this 
is that suddenly the government's got billions to spend. We've got a health emergency on our hand. The government's just spent, what, $133 billion last Wednesday they legislated. Well, where did that money come from? It was always there. And, and, and it's just now that all of us are, uh, are facing, uh, you know, ext extension problems for health reasons that the government can spend $133 billion. And so the question then, and so all these questions that come up when you ask for more money for the unemployed, some public sector job creation, uh, 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 renewable energy projects, et cetera, et cetera, the conservatives always say, well, how are you going to pay for it? The government hasn't got any money. Well, what we now know is that the government's got unlimited amounts of money. It can, it can uh, click its fingers and type money in, type numbers into bank accounts and the money's created. It doesn't, it's, it's there, it's paid for. And, uh, and what we've got to as citizens force on our leaders through the political process after this is over, that if they can do it for health emergency, they can do it for a climate emergency. And we don't want any penny pinching. We want, the, we want big projects, ambitious projects, where we decarbonise by 2030, because otherwise we'll be extinct for different reasons. And so that's what the leaders can learn. That, and what they can learn is that we now know what the game is. We now know that they can spend as much as, 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 much as is necessary to make the, the, the big changes. And, you know, there's been all these discussions, analogies in the last few weeks about, oh, we've got to go to war on this crisis. Well, we've got to go to war on poverty, on inequality, on unemployment, on underemployment and on climate uh, action. And all of those have got to be declared war efforts and the, number, and the government has to, has to take the responsibility on our behalf. That's what they now know, that we know. And we know something very powerful, the government has got unlimited amounts of cash. That was Professor Bill Mitchell explaining for us some of those lessons we can learn from the coronavirus crisis. And I think it's a powerful message he's putting across. If you would like to read more from the professor, he has some recent books he has co-authored, including Macroeconomics, which was published last year, Reclaiming the State, a Progressive Vision of Sovereignty for a Post-Neoliberal World in 2017, and Eurozone Dystopia, Groupthink and Denial on a Grand Scale, which was published in 2015. He blogs at bilboeconomicoutlook.net.blog. Sorry, that's bilbo.economicoutlook.net slash blog. You can just search for Billy Blog on Google. And if this topic inter interests you, I recommend listening to Kevin and Ann's show, which is Unemployed Workers Fight Back. That's part of the Sewer Show, and it airs every second Friday of the month, 5.30 to 6 p.m. You're listening to 3CR. And that was Monday Breakfast. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you to all of our guests for giving up their time to tell us their stories this week. We look forward to speaking to you again next week. Stay well and look after each other.